I'll make some pots. I'll give myself six months to live off this money and whatever. And I started teaching night classes at a uh, pottery studio in Hell's Kitchen in exchange for studio space. Never thinking this was my future, just thinking this was like a blip. And uh, eventually the money ran out. My parents were like, all right, we've been supporting you. Your grandmother's been supporting you. <laughs> like sell a pot or get a job, enough. And so I was lucky enough to get a meeting with a buyer from Barney's and they came over to my apartment and liked my work and I started selling to them and quite by accident. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Jonathan Adler's mission is to bring modern American glamour to your life. How? By creating a foundation of timelessly chic furniture and accessorizing with abandon. It all started with pottery. Jonathan first gave the wheel a spin at summer camp when he was 12 years old. He was obsessed with clay the moment he touched it. Unfortunately, his passion wasn't always encouraged. In fact, after his college professor told him, you have no talent, move to New York and become a lawyer, he attempted to comply, moving to the city and working in the entertainment business. Three years later, he quit and he went back to the wheel. In 1993, Barney's bought his collection of pots and in 1998, he opened his first store. Today, his offerings span furniture, lighting, decor, and more. Iconic interior design projects and retail locations worldwide, all rooted in his commitment to outstanding design, impeccable materials, and unparalleled craftsmanship. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of How Success Happens is being presented by State Farm. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling, rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you're all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know you're not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash small business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I started by asking John about this passion for pottery as a kid. Thanks so much for having me. And I did find my passion as a kid, which is, it's so funny in a world in which every upscale kid applying to college alleges that they have a passion for, you know, feeding the needy or like helping amputees in Chile or whatever the hell their college advisors concoct as a passion. We all know, of course, all kids really care about is like playing video games and social media. (laughs) I was an unusual 
little brat because I really <laughs> did have a passion. I had a passion for pottery. And it was something I discovered when I was 12 years old. And it was sort of a eureka moment when I first touched clay. And from that moment, it was on. It's been sort of a lifelong passion. It, there's been highs and lows and ups and downs as any passionate relationship has. And um, here I am, low these many years later, still um, in a constant state of passion and torment and tussle with my with my love, which is clay. Yeah. And I know that from the story, did you end up going to university and and studying uh, or or taking classes in pottery? I went to Brown University, fancy college, which didn't have a ceramics department, but it, I was lucky enough to be able to take classes at the Rhode Island School of Design, which was next door. And I sort of kept my love for clay at a low simmer during those years, mostly because I, I thought that I could never really do anything. You know, I thought it would be sort of just a lifelong passion, not dissimilar from my own father, who was a lawyer, but a passionate artist and spent his entire life when he wasn't lawyering, making art. And that's sort of what I imagined my trajectory would be. And so keeping it at a low simmer in college felt right. Right. And then there's a story, and, and I don't know if there's truth to this, but uh, you did have a college professor who, who said you had no talent and uh, you should just move to New York and actually become a lawyer. <laughs> well, that is true. Not apocryphal. And it's because like many kids who graduate, I was sort of at loose ends. I spent a year after college at the Rhode Island School of Design taking pottery classes and then I finally thought, uh, I don't want to enter the real world. I'll just try to get an MFA in clay. And this woman told me that I had no talent and I should give up. And I feel, I laughed because I feel terribly guilty because I've told the story so many times in which uh, this poor lady is treated as just this horrible villain. And now, you know, she was a talented ceramicist in her own right. And now if you Google her name, all that comes up is me because I've thrown her under the bus so many <laughs> times. So I feel very, I feel very ambivalent about telling the story because she was horrid, but whatever, I'm not scarred and I've erased her Google footprint. So I apologize officially to Jacqueline Rice. Well, I'm sorry. That is super nice of you because I think as many entrepreneurs and people who have followed their passion have always had to deal with a lot of folks who entrusted positions who have told them, no, you can't do this or you should do something else. And I, I think so many of the entrepreneurs we've had on this show have been told that, but but didn't listen to that advice. And obviously you didn't listen to that advice. So how did you start creating ceramics and, and then really starting to, to build a business and sell them? All quite by accident. And I think my tale is both cautionary and inspiring. I, at first, I heeded poor Jacqueline Rice's advice and thought, she's right. I can't really be a potter. Like, it's ridiculous. And so I did move to New York and uh, started to... I got a job in the entertainment industry working for a talent agency. And again, I've told this story many times and it doesn't reflect terribly positively on me, but keeping it 100, I worked in the movie business and I got fired from a series of jobs because I had very, 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 very loose moral character. And I was sleeping with everybody in the office <laughs> and kept getting fired 
from job <laughs> after job because of my horrible office indiscretion. And it's almost as if fate was either frowning or smiling upon me. And I found myself at like 26, unemployed, unemployable, and just didn't really know what the hell to do. And I was very lucky. My grandmother, like she cashed in some stops or something. And she gave my brother and sister and me, she gave us each 20,000 bucks. And it wasn't like, save this for a rainy day. It was like, here's 20,000 bucks, like live your life. And so I was like, great, I'll go to Fire Island for the summer. So I took the, <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to my level of adulthood. So, you know, I took most of it and splurged on a Fire Island rental and then took some and just thought, all right, I'm going to like chill. Obviously I've had like some rough times in the office and I will just like regroup. And in the meantime, I've moved into a new apartment. I was like, I'll make some pots. I'll give myself six months to live off this money and whatever. And I started teaching night classes at a uh, pottery studio in Hell's Kitchen in exchange for studio space, never thinking this was my future, just thinking this was like a blip. And uh, eventually the money ran out. My parents were like, all right, we've been supporting you. Your grandmother's been supporting you. <laughs> like sell a pot or get a job enough. And so I um, was lucky enough to get a meeting with a buyer from Barney's and they came over to my apartment and liked my work. And I started selling to them and quite by accident launched a business, which at the time I thought was again, going to be just another blip. You know, I thought it was sort of cool that I was able to express myself, make things, get them in Barney's and thought, this will be a really incredible chapter in my life that I'll be able to look back at and be like, wow, I was really good. I made pots at Barney's. Eventually I'd get a real job and, you know, have a nice upscale Jappy lifestyle. And the poverty would just be a sideline, sort of a side, a side piece. What actually, so, so you get this meeting, they're interested in, in, I mean, what was that feeling like? I mean, you sound so nonchalant and uh, I love it, the mellow. And was that, do you recall how you felt at that time? And, and like, oh, I was, was very it? chalant. I was very, very <laughs> chalant. <laughs> the nonchalance is just sort of uh, looking back nonchalance. But at the time right. I couldn't have been more chalant. I was like, <laughs> wow, this is like such an incredible opportunity. And I, you know, I felt, I also sort of, I, one interesting thing is that I, I sold these pots to Barney's I got and then I got a friend of mine had started Out Magazine, the gay yeah. magazine, and they did a little profile of me. So I went from being unemployed to having like this little profile of me and selling my pots at Barney's. And I remember so clearly being so chalant, thinking, okay, I'm no longer a private person. You know, now I'm <laughs> now I'm in the firmament. Probably I walked on the street and people be like, oh, there's that guy who was in Out magazine and <laughs> you know selling his pots at Barney's. And I thought, all right, this is just a new phase in my life, the public phase. And of course, of course, it was anything but. And I think that's a really important lesson is to not get ahead of yourself, not think you're more important than you are. And remember just how busy other people are and how little other people care about you or what you're up to. So it's very liberating to think that way because, of course, I got the publicity. I sold the pots and I remained and remain a non-public figure. And that's great. And and it was a it was a slow journey from selling those pots 
to realizing that not only was I not just unemployed, which is how I had defined myself for the previous like year if someone met me, and that I had a burgeoning, albeit small, cottage industry. You know, it's a great story and it's an amazing accomplishment or just being able to have that moment when they, you know, said, we're going to take you on. But building a business, becoming, you know, a real full-scale entrepreneur, I know there's tons of ups and downs. Was there a time in those early days where you thought, you know what, maybe this should just be a passion? And, uh, and even after you got that deal. I still have those feelings to this very day. It has <laughs> exactly. been it has been a journey. I can't remember what is it shoots and ladders or Frogger, one of those games where like you have to get on the right path and you can screw up at any moment. Both That's kind I of think. what I think any Frogger, yeah. yeah. I think any entrepreneur's journey is like that. And it's really been a con there's nothing fated about this. I think that it's I think my story and most people's stories are primarily about luck. That's really the truth. You know, I think you need to have the, you need to have a soup song of talent and um, you have to have your wits about you and be very careful and thoughtful. But that's not to say there aren't a billion obstacles that could have uh, sunk my business along the way. And I just, I suppose I'm a resilient person in as much as that can be characteristic that can, one can ascribe to oneself. I do think I'm, I'm, fairly resilient. And I'm also desperate being failing at everything else and kind of feeling like it's this or bust is a great motivating factor, not to, not to (laughs) equate it to something like as, you know, as awful as an affliction, like, like alcoholism or something, but sort of hitting rock bottom professionally and feeling like the doors to a, a normal professional life are being closed to you but feeling like you have this one opportunity and you better take it is a very powerful motivating force. It was certainly very helpful for me. And I think that's kind of what fueled my journey. I didn't really have much of a choice. I will say just from interviewing so many entrepreneurs, being an entrepreneur, the resiliency, I would say, is the number one attribute that I found people who who have been successful and especially your story reminds me of myself, like, Hey, this was the only opportunity, you know, no one was hiring me. If I don't make this work, I'm in trouble. And that could be extremely motivating. It could also mean I have to pay a lot of money to my psychologists and psychiatrists and, and, and all of that, but it really does motivate you. And it sounds like you really got behind that. And how did you get from those initial days with Barney's to then really branching out and tell us how you built the business. I built the business slowly, frugally, 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 frugally. Like if there's one thing any burgeoning entrepreneur takes away from this chat is just please um, be frugal. That's the most important thing. Slowly, frugally, and diligently. I, you know, I didn't have any knowledge or skills. I came at this really from the perspective of an outsider. I had no business understanding whatsoever. My family was hopeless. Nobody really had could give me any advice, but I did recognize that I had myself and that clay is dirt cheap. And I had a really cheap studio and I didn't spend a dime on anything unnecessary. 
And I just worked like 12 to 15 hours a day, seven days a week. I was just in it and recognized I had an opportunity. I had to take it as far as I could take it. And that's kind of what I did. And I, I do think in a world, it was before, it was even before the idea of everyone, of everyone wanting to be an entrepreneur and startups and all that Michigas. Like nobody had a company. None of my friends were starting anything. Everybody either had jobs or they were, you know, perhaps they were artists, but they were just artists doing their thing. And it wasn't like I'm going out for my first round of financing <laughs> right. or, you know, who's backing you? Like that was not a thing. The idea of creating a quote unquote brand was certainly not a thing. Nobody was thinking that way. I was not thinking that way. There seemed to be a lot of impediments to starting a company. And I was just, so I was just kind of a craftsperson making and selling stuff. And you understood, you know, from that area that, building a business, not getting thrown, like you said at the time where today it's, hey, here's $100 million. This is a huge idea. Go figure out. You really built a business, the gritty, you know, I hate to say old fashioned way. It's the same way I did it with self-funding and you sell something, you add something. And that's such a great thought for entrepreneurs because not everyone, a lot of listeners of this show who are going to start, they're putting their own money in. They're not getting or raising tons of millions of dollars of capital. And the fact, just I love how you took office space and basically had the office space and and then uh, taught class just to get that space, which is incredible. But tell us how then you decide to start retail locations, because there you have to really make some commitments to lease deals and and really put yourself on the line. Well, first of all, I was just chuckling when you said you know, everyone thinks they have a big idea. I think I recognize that I might've had the smallest idea of all time, like dude makes pots, like small idea. So I didn't get, I had no grandiosity, which, you know, sort of approaching it from perspective of humility was quite good. And as, a, as far as retail goes, I did kind of have one inspiration, which is that my parents who I love and they're the most fabulous parents on earth. My dad unfortunately died over 20 years ago, but my mom's incredible. And they were brilliant, smart, talented, creative, and profoundly non-risk taking. Like neither of them took a risk in their life. They had fabulous lives. Everything worked out perfectly, but it wasn't based on risk. And I recognized that that was something to rebel against. So whenever confronted with a business decision, I always think like, what would my parents do? And then I do the opposite. And so I had always had this little, as I was making my pots, I'd always kind of had this fantasy, like, wouldn't it be cool to eliminate the middleman, just be able to make whatever I want, put it out there for the world to see it just, it was sort of an artist's dream to eliminate the middleman, just make stuff. And at the time rents were cheap in Soho. And I called my parents and I was like, I'm thinking about opening a store. What do you think? And they were like, oh, God, no, don't do it. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, fantastic. Thank you. That's all I need to hear. And as I said, I did that quite frugally. My husband, Simon, is a retail genius. I skipped a step along the way between selling my pots at Barney's and opening a store. I had met and married the grooviest retail genius of all time, who's a similarly small thinker, actually. He and I are very alike. We're small thinkers. And so he was like, yeah, I guess you should try retail. Not in a Svengali-like way, just like, yeah. And so I did it. And I, it was, rents were cheap. I did it on the cheap. I had my 
office in the basement and I had one person upstairs minding the till and when she would go out to lunch, I would mind the till. So I was in there all the time and it was cheap and cheerful. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. No one succeeds alone. Even the best entrepreneurs know when it's time to bring in an outside expert. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today so your business can succeed tomorrow. You can check work samples, client reviews, and more to make sure you're hiring the right pro for your business. And there's no cost until you hire. Plus, you'll only pay for work you approve. Whether you're looking to hire a single pro for a project or an entire team to scale your business, Upwork can help you reach your goals. And however you hire, Upwork is available to help you keep things running smoothly with 24-7 support, letting you stay focused on what matters, your business. Find the right talent for whatever your business needs at Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. And our next sponsor. So, this is the part where I'm getting paid to tell you about Real Vision. Since 2014, Real Vision's been on a mission to democratize access to the financial information that was largely kept behind closed doors. The stuff that actually affects your wallet, your investments, and your future. As a member, you'll get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos from the archives, including special limited series, focused educational journeys for beginners and experienced investors alike. And guess what? You can join Real Vision for just $1. That's right, $1. To get started, visit realvision.com slash success pod. Get a year of essential membership for only $199, a 17% discount, and less than $17 a month. Use promo code ESSENTIALPOD at checkout. Again, that's realvision.com slash successpod, and successpod is just one word. And we're back. You saw how much your father loved doing his art. And was there ever a part of you that really not so much rebelled, but was like, I really want to do this because I saw he never, he never was able to make this into a career? No. In fact, it's still something I'm quite ambivalent about because he and I took very different paths. He was beyond talented. And I think he thought about becoming an artist full time, but then also thought, oh no, I'll, you know, make a really good living and support a family, which he did quite successfully. And I think that he spent all of his time making art. And it was actually a fantastic way for him to live because he was unconstrained by commerce. And I think on some level, his artistic odyssey was probably more pure, possibly Mm. more creative and possibly more fulfilling than mine. I think he might've been correct and I might've been incorrect by making an artistic passion into a career. So they're two totally different approaches to a passion. And I am constantly sort of bouncing back and forth in my mind about which is the right way. Cause I, you know, I have commercial concerns. Like I don't just sort of make whatever I want to make. I mean, I do make whatever I want to make, but I also, there's a lot of stuff involved and my passion for creativity ain't so pure anymore. It's like, you know, it's work. And so maybe he was right. I, I will never know. 
Yeah, that that's really interesting. And and you said you married a, a retail genius, which I'm sure helped because you didn't stop at one store. You started to create other locations. And how did that go? Was it a quick run up or were there a lot of challenges? <laughs> it's so funny because Simon, Simon Dunan, my husband, is a retail genius. But he is very risk averse and very frugal, like me. So he was always discouraging me from opening stores. So basically, I had a lot of between Jacqueline Rice, poor thing, and my parents and Simon. Not only did I not have mentors, I had a series of tormentors um, who were sort of guiding me, albeit in a strange way. Um, I just thought, all right. You know, I have this store, it's doing well. I should open a store in the Hamptons. I should open a store in LA. I scrimped and saved and saved up my money and, and built this little cottage industry. I had no idea what I was doing. And it was only sort of like a ways into it that this really fab woman who was working in my store, who kind of was married to a rich dude, was like told her husband, she's like, this business is kind of incredible. And this poor kid has no idea what he's doing. And her husband, was like, I'm going to invest in you and there's something here. And I literally didn't even understand what he was talking about. I was so primitive. I was doing QuickBooks and I didn't understand the first thing about accounting. I was just a very primitive person for the first, I'd say literally 10 years of being in business. Very primitive, but on a sort of, which is all one needed to be back in the day. And anyway, he gave me a little infusion of cash for some part of the biz. And then that we just opened a couple more stores and business kept growing. And over the years, I've become a true varsity businessman. I understand all the numbers and letters and acronyms and this is and that's, uh, but it was a, an unexpected and unnatural trajectory. Like I'm, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, an accidental businessman, a very intentional potter. Do you enjoy that part of being an entrepreneur of the business? I'm good at it, but I don't enjoy it particularly. I'm not like one of these kind of mockers who <laughs> won. There are a lot of kind of mockers in the retail business. And for anybody who doesn't speak Yiddish out there, yeah, then gonna that's on the you. Like, learn, learn it because it's the most expressive and fantastic language ever. So like get some, like learn some Yiddish words. So it's not that I'm, some people might think of me as macher-ish, but I'm not. I'm quite insular, quite kind of serious and focused and analytical. And I recognize the need to be a thoughtful businessman and as a means to an end. I want to bring up, you were selected by American Express to actually be on one of their stories in their series, the American Express Business Class series. And uh, in that, you, I guess, talked about leadership. And I'm wondering if there's any advice you shared that could help small business owners kind of hone their leadership skills, especially now, like you've seen yes, here in New York with so many businesses going out and new ones starting, anything you can share or you would share with those folks? Oy vey. I'm probably the very, even though I did participate in that Amex thing, it's been a delight. And I hope people get stuff from me, but I might be the worst person to ask because my approach to leadership and as much as I'm a leader, my approach to being in business is quite out of step 
with the mores of business today. I loathe the sort of like business world, the inauthenticity, the inhuman approach to business that people seem to adopt, a world in which, you know, you can't ask people about their personal lives or tell somebody they look cute if they're wearing something nice. Like that to me is literally the antithesis of being human. It's the opposite of how I started. Yes, when I was an employee, I did have a very, very, very weak moral compass. And I don't think, I don't think, a, I don't, I would hardly exhort people to um, throw it about in the office as I did. Although, you know, if employees happen to meet each other and start dating, I think that's fantastic. You know, where else are you going to meet people? Anyway, I'm digressing. I think that for me, I think the key to being a leader is to be a goddamn human being and not an automaton like one is encouraged to be. And that might, you risk something because a lot of people, a lot of employees um, these days, as we all know, can sort of are prone to malicious misinterpretation of different things. But I choose to ignore that idea and just try and interact with my colleagues as a human. And I hope I survive that. That's that's my tip for leadership is to try to be human, try to ignore some of the uh, business mishigas that's going on in the world today and, and really relate to people as people in a trusting and authentic way. Yeah. As someone who has retail locations and, and went through this pandemic, it's still to some degree going through it. Is there anything as we now enter 2022 that you're thinking about that maybe you learn during that time about your business? First of all, what a crazy, crazy couple of years it's been. Mm. And it has been devastating for small business, as we all know. And I think it's honestly, it's never been tougher there. It's just coming at you every different direction in a way that didn't used to like the world used to just be much, much simpler. And now it ain't, you know, between the pandemic, the online thing, it's getting harder and harder to just like have a biz. You need to be so much smarter, so much sharper. And it's very, I don't think I could replicate my career trajectory today at all. I think it's very challenging to build scale. I think it's easier to get a foothold because there are there are not just a limited number of retail locations. Like if you're starting something like you have you have a million different ways to reach your customer online. Um, you don't need a physical location. Like there's just there's a lot more opportunity. It's just much it's just more difficult to build scale. So I think my advice would be to again be as frugal as possible because of the challenges of building scale. And I think just one has to just be so much, so much sharper and relentless and thoughtful. It's like a really tough and competitive climate. And I think the pandemic has made that much worse. If you have a physical location for your business, it's hard. If you have an, um, it's just all hard coming at you from every different direction. I just think it's best if you have tremendous inherited wealth. That's my advice. <laughs> Try to yeah. I was not so lucky. Me neither. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I think my advice to small business owners is like, just have vast stores of inherited wealth. Other than that, like, good luck. 
It ain't easy. It, it really is. And I'm, I'm being glib, but I, I, I think my, I'm being glib, but, I, but I'm, I just recognize how hard it is. Yeah, no, it's, it's difficult. And like you said, why you thought you'd been successful or have been, it goes back and, and on this show over and over to resiliency, picking yourself off the mat. And even in tougher times, tougher opponents, I still say to a lot of people who want to take that dive off the diving board and start their own business that uh, go for it because there isn't anything like running your own shop. But if you do, it's going to take a, a lot of resiliency, a lot of rejection. And you talked about people hear about Jonathan Adler or so many of the names we've had, and they just think everything was so easy. You know, they're all, the, oh my God, oh yeah, they're, he had an article and out, uh, he, did, he sold the barn and of course, but they don't realize like how difficult and what you did. And, and that's incredible. And before I let you go, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, we're talking a lot about small business and outside of the work you've been doing with American Express. Are there any other things you're doing to support small businesses these days? Well, it's funny. I think that when one has a business, a small business, there's you sort of enter a network of B2B transactions that essentially do support small business. You know, I think that's sort of one of the magical, mystical things about capitalism is that it's really kind of I think I can't remember who said it, but it's sort of an imperfect system, but it's the best one we've ever gotten. Whoever said that, Milton Friedman or somebody. <laughs> I think that there's it's not a charitable component, but it's a a fabulous part of capitalism that when you start a business, you suddenly start to support other businesses and a network of businesses flourishes. So whenever I see a small business, I sort of think of all the different people they're supporting be it employees, other businesses. In that sense, I'm very, I'm a very, very pro-business, pro-small business person. Apropos of what you were saying before about, you know, all the people starting businesses, I would encourage people to not do what I did. Like, I think I'm a lucky dude. I think people should work in whatever field they're interested in, get a job at whatever level in a field that they're interested in before launching their own small business, learn the ropes on somebody else's dime. And it's so funny, you use the metaphor of jumping off a diving board. And I was just literally just reflecting on the fact that diving boards don't exist anymore because of safetyism in our society. There's no such thing as a diving board. Um, and I think that's, I can't quite figure out how, but I know that that is a good metaphor for what we're dealing with. Like there's probably, you know, you can't dive off a diving board anymore because they don't exist. And by the same token, I wouldn't encourage people to take a huge risk. I would encourage them to learn the ropes and then take a little risk after they know what they're doing. Yeah. Jonathan, we appreciate you uh, coming on. I think I am going to have to include a, a Yiddish uh, translation in all the show notes for uh, those that don't speak it, which will be a first, but really inspiring in terms of what you've built and have done. And I wanted to uh, thank you for coming on and sharing with us on uh, how success happens. Um, thank you so much for having me. And most importantly, thank you to your wife for actually buying my stuff. <laughs> 
Peace well, out. she buys a ton of it. And if I tell you how much of your stuff we have in this house, and this could be, as I said, the only interview she has ever listened I'm to. I'm going to show you the latest thing I've ever said. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She, when I'm saying that your stuff is filled in our apartment, it is filled in our <laughs> apartment yes that's for our little nice. guy nice. <laughs> my Love wife it. is showing a little doggy treat clay pot that our dog loves puppy uppers puppy uppers yay thank you for your custom <laughs> truly i appreciate like i never take it for granted if somebody decides to spend their hard-earned shekels on my stuff I really appreciate it. So keep buying my chopskis. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Appreciate right. it. Later, dude. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks. Bye. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.